When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to episode number nine of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you all are safe and well. My last release day was great. I brought out two episodes on the same day with Jeff Comenti and Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams. Uh, Your response was great, and I really appreciate you all tuning in. I'm excited to follow it up today with one of my favorite drummers, my friend John Molo. I got turned on to Molo's playing back in the Bruce Hornsby days, and I've always admired his feel for the music and, and just how he put so much soul into it. We're going to have to change the name of our cover band segment for the day to There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every country as we speak with Shuhei, the keyboardist for the Warlocks of Tokyo from, you guessed it, Tokyo, Japan. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check out our Patreon site and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content, including unedited interviews and outtakes. And actually this week I'm going to have a great video version, uh, unedited, of my interview with Shuhei. Uh, with the interpreter and all, so it's it's kind of a kind of cool. Uh, there's also expanded video versions of the Black Music Moment and Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown. I bring you videos from home and very soon from on the road. Uh, community gatherings. We just had our first one a couple weeks ago, and it was great to get together with some of the patrons and uh, learn more about what they'd like to hear on the podcast. There's also some cool swag and other ways to uh, further engage with me and support the podcast. Check it out at www dot patreon.com forward slash the music plays and i'm happy to let you know there's also a second way to help out now with a one-time contribution at paypal.me forward slash the music plays the black music moment is brought to you by the clean store branding and apparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs technology driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today we honor the national treasure, Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte was born to Jamaican parents in Harlem in 1927. From the age of 5 to 13 years old, he lived in Jamaica with one of his grandmothers. He returned to New York City to finish high school and first began to study acting with his friend Sidney Portier. He became successful very quickly and even won a Tony Award in 1953. He started his music career actually as a way to pay for his acting classes. He began performing professionally and his first gig took place at the Village Vanguard where, get this, I mean this guy was always surrounded by greatness. His backing band for his very first gig included Charlie Parker, Max Roach, and Miles Davis. He touched on all styles of music starting as a pop singer. 
moving on to folk music and eventually turning on the entire world to the rhythms and joy of Calypso, the music of Trinidad. His 1956 album, Calypso, sold over a million copies in its first year and spent 31 weeks at number one on the U.S. charts. Back in the 50s, these numbers are just unheard of. He released many other Calypso albums, but also recorded folk, blues, gospel, and show tunes as well. He continued to record and act, but became very involved in both humanitarian causes and political activism in the 50s and 60s, and was a close confidant of Martin Luther King Jr. He has never stopped advocating for causes, whether it be politics, civil rights, or famine. He actually uh, he was one of the organizers of USA for Africa to record We Are the World back in the 80s for famine relief. He has appeared in over three dozen movies, countless TV shows, and released 38 albums. He has won Tony Awards, Emmys, a Kennedy Center Honor, and the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 1981, Bob Weir introduced the song Man Smart, Woman Smarter into the mix of the Grateful Dead's playlist. Now, Belafonte had popularized this song on the album Calypso, but it was actually written and originally recorded by a Trinidadian named Norman Spann in 1936. Another song popularized by Belafonte, Matilda, made a handful of appearances in 1994 and 95. You know, I could go on and on about this man and his life. Uh, I've always enjoyed him. My parents had the Harry Belafonte's Greatest Hits album when I was a kid, and I would listen to it constantly and just loved it. Uh, and, and what's amazing is he is still active today at 94 years of age, still after doing his thing. So here is Harry Belafonte in his version of Man Smart, Women Smarter. I say, let us put man and a woman together to find out which one is smarter. <laughs> Some say men, but I say no. The women, but the men, be they should know, and not me. They say that the men are leading the women astray But I say that the women of today Smarter than the man in every way That's right, the woman is smarter That's right, the woman is smarter That's right, the woman is smarter That's right, that's right Ever since the world began Woman was always teaching man to listen to my bit attentively. I'm going to tell you how she smarter than me cannot be. But the people they say that the men are leading the women astray. But I say that the women of today smarter than the man in every way. Samson was the strongest man long ago. No one could have beat him, as we all know, until he clashed with Delilah on top of the bed. <laughs> she told him all the strength was in the hair of his head, and not me. But the people, they say that the men are leading the women astray. But I say that the women of today smarter than the man in every way. That's right, the woman is smarter. That's right. The woman is uh, smart down. That's right. The woman is uh, smart down. That's right. That's right. The Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown with Brad Sarno is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument gear designed and hand built right here in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003 and Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. So today Brad and I are going to get started on a series of conversations uh, about the live sound of the dead and the men responsible for it. 
so let's just jump right in. Here we go. Okay, I'm back again today with Brad Sarno, my friend. How are you doing? Doing well, Rob. Glad to have you along, as always. Uh, we've spent so much time talking about the musicians and their instruments and their gear and the way they get their tones, but we haven't really talked about when that comes out to the fans and where they hear it. Uh, so I kind of wanted to talk about some of the sound reinforcement and the sound guys and, and all of that. Um, and I figure there's no better place to start than Bear, Owsley Stanley. Absolutely. He he came on way early. I mean, he was there right from in the '60s at the acid test, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, and he was uh, he was kind of the facilitator of what what happened, really. And he I, from from what I read, he he was around and doing other stuff, and he said I can help with the sound, and 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 took kind of took over and and started uh, putting together all these different parts of different PAs and essentially as time went on, they built the wall of sound, which was something no one had ever seen. I mean, the grateful dead, let's be honest when it comes to sound quality and, and, and live audio, they were innovators. They were ahead of their time on everything. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Revolutionary. They were the Guinea pigs of, uh, technologists that were testing stuff. They were, they were the testing ground for all kinds of stuff. They, their demands is, and the philosophy they adopted from Bear was just, you know, it's never good enough. Just go for the best, you know, the best fidelity. The music's so important. It has to sound amazing. And they always would put their money back into their sound system. Yeah, they, apparently. They would, they would reinvest whatever, you know, when, when they made profits, they didn't just take it. They would try and go and make themselves better right. in that. So so the wall of sound, and I know it wasn't just Bear. I know Healy was part of that because he was an assistant back then. And the guys from Alembic and Rick Turner and, and the crew had to build the damn thing. Um, for those of you out there that know what the wall of sound is, it's just a massive, massive, it's a massive line array, really, isn't it? It really is. It's the birth of the line array to the best of our knowledge. Um, and it's, uh, it's really unique. It, it, it corresponds to the philosophy of the Grateful Dead in a big way where they really put the control of the mix and the dynamics in the hands of the artists on stage. They, uh, each guy had his own massive tower of speakers and they had their own control. That stuff was not controlled by a sound person out front. Uh, the, uh, the only thing out front that was controlled by the house was, uh, the vocals. Um, but the instruments were in the hands of each guy. Um, and, uh, with beautiful Macintosh amps and JBL speakers, huge, tall towers. So uh, in each, each tower was for a different player, right? Yeah. It, each, each instrument had its own discrete PA system, basically. That's crazy. Yeah, the people who I'm a little too young to have witnessed it in person, but the people I know that did said there's just nothing like that sound. There's just not <laughs> nothing like that clarity and that organic purity. And uh, Phil's thing went, took it even a step further than just having his own tower, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he had a guitar uh, pickup system where each string had its own pickup and output, and each string was sent to its own tower. <laughs> which in each tower they were sp spread across the stage. So it was a massive <laughs> kind of insane uh, base rig up there. Were, were, so were the towers stacked on each side of the stage for both of them? Did Jerry have a tower on each side of center so that the image going out to the crowd was balanced? I believe Jerry just had his tower that was behind him. Wow. And the same went for Bob. That has to be so loud. 
You know, I understand that it wasn't that brutally loud. It just, um, the, the line array factor gave it uh, very focused imaging and the height of the tower uh, helped cover a big crowd in a long distance. But um, I mean, yeah, it was probably pretty loud on stage because these speakers were behind the artists. That would, I don't know if I could do that. It's thinking about that, you know, we've never, you or me or anybody who's played live has never really played with the speakers behind us. The PA is always in front of us and we have a monitor system and we have in-ears now, but, or just our stage amps. I can't imagine having the entire sound system behind me. Yeah. I wonder what that was like, but again, you know, there's something about that philosophy they were going with that whole bear philosophy of extreme fidelity quality of audio and when things are that clean and uh well designed and well placed um you don't really have to be brutally loud to be heard and so um i imagine it wasn't quite the (laughs) the the brutal loud shitstorm on stage that you might imagine all right my friend well thank you very much you take care and we will talk to you very soon all right good talking to you rob take care all right thank you that's brad sarno folks all right we're gonna pick that conversation up right where we left off next week because there's definitely more to talk about when it comes to uh the wall of sound and a lot of the the innovations that the grateful dead made in the world of sound Moving on to our next segment, today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity.coach Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have to change the name of this segment just for this week to There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every country as we head to Japan to speak with Shuhei, the keyboardist for the Warlocks of Tokyo. It was, it was really great to talk to someone from another culture and really hear about the universal appeal of the Grateful Dead. Okay, so this week on the uh, There's a Grateful Dead cover band in every town segment, we're going to give it a little bit of an international flavor and... It's There's a Grateful Dead cover band in every country, and I'm very happy to welcome from the Warlocks of Tokyo in Japan, Shuhei, and our interpreter, Brad Lefton. Thank you both for being here. Uh, <laughs> Shuhei, thank you so Hi. much. Um, yeah, me too. Thank you very much. It's it's really wonderful to have you here. Uh, the Warlocks of Tokyo is the band. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how and when the band got started? So the, the group itself has been performing for about 30 years. Wow. I'm not an original member of the group, but they have been together uh, for about 30 years. And uh, I, as I understand it, they began as a Grateful Dead uh, cover band. Amazing. 30 years in Japan. So you're, you said so you told me you were 38 and you're the youngest member. You play the keyboards. Um, how long have you been in the band? About, about 10 years. All right. Yeah, so about 10 years old, 2012 or 11. Or uh, maybe. Um, 
the, the, the instrumentation you all use is, do you have two drummers? Um, yes. Two, two drummers. Two yeah. drummers. Um, and, and right now you're not really able to perform too much, I assume, because of the pandemic. Um, when, when, when there's no pandemic and it's just a regular time, how often do the Warlocks of Tokyo go out and perform? I would say probably two to three. We probably have two to three gigs in a normal month when there's not a pandemic. And are they all in Tokyo? Tokyo no mi desu ka? Ano, Tokyo igai no tokoro demo, ano, live yatte masu ka? Hai, Tokyo mo yarimasu shi, sono hoka no. So we, we, of course, we perform a lot in Tokyo, but we're not limited to Tokyo. We, we go all over Japan. We've performed in Hokkaido, the island to the north of the main island. We've performed in Aomori, which is in the very north of the main island. We've performed in uh, Miyazaki, which is on the southern island of Kyushu. So we've performed uh, all over Japan. And, and there's Grateful Dead fans everywhere you go. Dead to my mom, that's Zenkoku ni irun desu ka? So desu, Zenkoku ni itte, sono Nihonjuru no Dead fan ga naka ibento kikaku shite, Warlocks o yonde kuremasu. Yeah, they're they're all over Japan, and uh, we get we get called to perform uh, all over Japan by the the Grateful Dead fans that are all over the place. How did uh, you personally, I guess, because the band started before you, but how how did you learn about the Grateful Dead's music? Um, how, how did you how did you come to learn it and, and come to know about it? High school, 高校生の時ですね So, I'm from an area uh, close to Tokyo, but not, not uh, in Tokyo, uh, called Utsunomiya. That's where I was born and grew up. And uh, uh, I probably have been a fan of the Grateful Dead since high school. And there was a, a shop called... I think you understood Jack Straw. It's the name of a Grateful Dead song. Oh, the name of a Grateful Dead song. Yeah. 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 It was the name of a, a store. Yeah. In, yes, Cross Shop. Cross Shop. Fashion Shop. In Utsunomiya. In Utsunomiya. In Utsunomiya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very lo- local place. <laughs> yeah. Utsunomiya is, 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 a very, uh, is a very small, small town. Uh, but they had a, a closed fashion shop that sold uh, Oregon tie-dyes and other uh, clothes. Yeah, kind of hemp wear. Hemp wear. <laughs> hemp wear, yeah. Tie-dye batiks. <laughs> <laughs> so as a high schooler, uh, that's I would shop there, and uh, that's how it all started. What? What was it about this music that appealed to you? What, what grabbed you and made you love this music? So, great, great for the dead, no, ongaku, ni, nani, nani, wo kini, eh, irimashitaka, saishowa. Saishowa, denzen, wakaranakata. I think that I, I didn't understand the lyrics in the beginning. I didn't, I didn't know what, what they were singing about, but the more I listened, I was just impressed by their ability to improv, and uh, that's that's what really turned me on at first. That, that's something I was going to ask later, but I'm going to go there now. 
I know that Shuhei speaks a little bit of English, but none of the other band members do. So how are they able to learn the lyrics and are they able to comprehend what their meanings are and, and, and what those songs are talking about? So we, we don't have a, a perfect understanding of uh, the lyrics, <laughs> but what we do is we just, as, as best we can, we try to study the meaning of the lyrics, you know, either we'll look up the words in a dictionary ourselves, or we'll ask uh, an English-speaking friend or uh, uh, a foreigner to tell us what this means. And when we sing the songs, we sing them in Japanese. So we translate the the, the songs into Japanese as best as best we can, as uh, with the resources that we have to to understand uh, the lyrics, we translate them into Japanese. And we perform in Japanese. You perform all the songs in Japanese, none in English? <laughs> so <laughs> we sing Jerry's songs, we sing in Japanese, but Bobby's songs we do in English. Interesting. Is there a reason behind that? Our band's leader, the Warlock's leader, he's he sings, he's our our he's responsible for the Jerry songs. <laughs> so he's our Jerry guy. Right. And he speaks a little English. And in the 1980s, he actually traveled to America and uh, went to some Grateful Dead concerts. And so he has a little understanding. So he is, uh, uh, one of his responsibilities within the band is uh, he's in charge of all Jerry stuff. When when you all play the music, do you, uh, how can I say this? Um, how do you all interpret the music? Do you try and play it true to its original form? Or do you have, do you put your own spin on it? Or do you have a mindset when you go in to start playing this music? So we try to be respectful to the, the mood of each piece. But, you know, when it comes to the lyrics or some specific sounds, we, we, we take a lot of liberties ourselves, but we try to be true you know, to the, to the overall mood of the piece. That's, that's beautiful. Wow. Um, Shuhei, are you, are you familiar with all of the different Grateful Dead keyboard players? Keith, Brand, Big Pen, all of that. Oh. Do you have a favorite? Uh, my number one is Keith Garcia. Is Keith? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Keith. He's feel that there's just a great sensitivity uh, in, in to his the sounds that he produces. I really like the the harmony and the uh, the, the sensitivity that he, that he uh, evoked. Tell me a little bit about the Deadhead community in Tokyo or all in Japan, since you travel a lot. Um, you have a strong following. Is there a big Grateful Dead following? I, you know, I know part of this because we played Fuji Rocks in uh, 
2011, and I was amazed at how many people in the crowd, whether they knew English or not, they were all singing along. They all knew the words to the Grateful Dead music in Japan. Um, do you see a lot of the same people at every show? Do you have like a strong community that follows you to listen to the Grateful Dead music? So both we have we have people who follow us from Tokyo to uh, to our performances in Kyushu, the southern island of Kyushu, or all the way to the northern island of Hokkaido or wherever we go. But we also have uh, local fans in any uh, any city that we play. And do they run the whole the um, the whole age group from old to young, all ages come out to hear you? どんなどんな年齢ですかあの。やっぱり、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私は、私
to be with us and let the people over here and my audience know about what y'all are doing over there with the Grateful Dead. I'm, everybody's so happy that this music is all over the world, and I want to thank you very much for being here. Also, it's Excellent. That is Shuhei from the Warlocks of Tokyo, and I'd like to thank Brad Lefton for、uh, doing a great job interpreting for me. Definitely made this go much smoother. So thank you again very much. Thank you very much. So cool to talk to him and, and hear how this music that we love so much really transcends cultural and language barriers all over the world. There's a full video version of this interview available, along with much, much more, when you purchase a subscription at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays. We have a few different levels to choose from, and this interview is available at all of them. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one time contribution, please visit paypal.me forward slash the music plays. Our featured conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, Grateful Sweats is your first stop for subtle dead designs. Check them out at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats and see for yourself. Designs that only other heads will get. When you're wearing the state of Tennessee with Jed in it and someone says, Nice shirt, you know they're on the bus. And a subtle dead cap makes its point. No one else does sweats like Grateful Sweats. Hoodies, sweatpants, joggers, tees, and much more. And right now, we're happy to offer a special discount to our listeners. Get $10 off when you enter the coupon code THEMUSICPLAYS. That is $10 off any purchase through April 7th. So visit etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats today. So today I'm talking with drummer John Molo. John's been a part of the Grateful Dead family since opening for the Dead with Bruce Hornsby and the Range back in the 80s.、Uh, he was a part of the 90s offshoot The Other Ones, and he became a constant in Phil and Friends starting in 1999. Over the years, he's also toured with John Fogarty, Chris Robinson, my bandmate Rob Baracco, David Nelson, and is a longtime member of the band Moon Alice. You know, it's, it's always fun to talk to a drummer,、uh, but especially as one as engaging as John. So sit back and relax, or continue that walk, or workout, or whatever you're doing, and enjoy our conversation. Okay, so I am here today with my friend John Molo. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm here in Southern California, and it's、uh, great to be here with you. I appreciate you taking the time.、Uh, what have you been doing with yourself? We haven't really been able to go out on the road. So, how have you been、uh, staying, staying sane during this pandemic?、Uh, well, you know, I'm a bit of a collector instrument wise. So, I started doing a lot of work on these drum sets that I have. I probably have like 10 kits and a bunch of snares. So, I did that. And then I finished that, and we're still in the middle of it. So, I made a point to really stay in. Uh, physical and mental shape so that when it did come back, I was not totally scuffling. I did a rehearsal the other day with our friend、uh, Roger McNamee, Moon Alice, the T Sisters, Chambers Brothers, and I was feeling it、uh, after that third rehearsal for sure. I know when we talked on the phone the other day, I was getting off the phone to go pick up my kids, and you said you were getting off the phone to go work on your double strokes. So,、yeah. have, you, have you been practicing a bunch? Have you been able to do that? Yeah, I really, I've been working on some stuff that, you know, I pick out stuff that I can work on for like three or four years. So,、uh, yeah, the double strokes, some of the rudiments,、um, playing an odd time, seven and nine.、Uh, Jason Crosby's been helping me with、uh, some Brubeck in nine, it's always a challenge.、Uh, 
Uh, so I just try to keep it mentally fresh and, and stay in shape. Uh, I also work on some of the uh, Caribbean stuff, whether it be reggae or like uh, sort of the Cuban uh, style of music. I call it Caribbean uh, clave, son clave, rumba clave. I still work on that stuff. So I'm just trying to stay in shape. So when it does come back, I'm not sucking. Are you playing every day? Uh, just about. I have so many drum kits, like I said, that it's hard to walk by them without taking like 10 minutes to get into <laughs> with the drum kit. Good for you. Good for you. And that's awesome. I wish I had a little bit more time to practice. But, you know, we're starting to get some gigs and people are starting to play. There's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So that's a good thing, right? Oh, man. I, I can hardly hardly wait to hear you guys. You're always so nice to me when I show up as a fan and a listener. And then every once in a while, you actually ask me to sit in. Oh, it's so much fun, man. It's, it's so fun. much fun. You grew up in the DC area. I know that. Um, can you tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about your musical upbringing and background, how you really got started? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, there was always a lot of music in our house. My mom listened to sort of mainstream pop and my dad was more of Brandenburg concerto Bach guy. So we always had some music going on. And then my sisters, uh, one played accordion, the other played piano. They were taking lessons and I thought it was pretty cool. I knew I didn't want to play piano or accordion because I had been up at Andrews Air Force Base and there was a jazz trio up there. And I walked up to the drum kit and the mounted Tom was probably taller than I was. And the guy behind the drum kit said, would you like to play drums? And I was like, yeah, I'm ready right now. If you would move over, I'd get behind the kit and play. And I had never played a note in my life. So it was just sort of a thing that I wanted to do. I was very fortunate to be in D.C. And I'll cite the best thing about being a young musician in D.C. Because you have the Army Band, the Navy Band, the Air Force Band, the Marine Band. There's a plane going overhead. No worries. Here in the West Valley. <laughs> because you have all those great service bands, there's always some really smoking hot drummers to take lessons from. And back in the early 70s, of course, we were we were in the midst of a, a, a draft situation. But if you could get in one of the bands, you'd do six weeks of boot camp and then just go around playing ceremonial events. Hence, for a lot of us, we see Steve Gadd in a military outfit. Right. I heard Steve when I was a junior in high school with the Army Field Band. So there was always a lot of ceremonial music around D.C. You could always get some lessons. And, uh, you know, a lot of diversity down there on the left-hand side. You had WHUR out of Howard. You had the Sunday morning bluegrass gospel hour. And it was a good musical place to grow up, for sure. You're, you're of the age, and I don't know if this, you're of the age when, I guess you're probably early teens, maybe, when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan show. Do you remember that? Was that a moment for you? Absolutely. I was in fifth grade, San Francis Xavier, on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in Southeast D.C., over by where O'Teal and Kofi grew up. And uh, yeah, that was a big event. Uh, you know, I saw them perform on TV and it was unbelievable to me how good they were and like how I didn't realize about intonation and stuff like that, of course. But then I showed up the, the, the next day of school, whatever it was, one of the kids had seen the Beatles in D.C., at the D.C. Armory, I believe. Wow. And he was of the same mindset as I was. It was just incredible. So yeah, I got to see them. Uh, there were some other really cool records like uh, Dave Clark Five. If you listen to them, boy, that sounds a lot like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band with the rock sax and Mike Smith singing vocals. So yeah, I really got into that 
British invasion thing, whatever it was. But even before that, just even folk music, uh, like, you know, stuff you'd hear on the radio. I liked all of it, whether it was jazz or folk or pop. I was just into music for sure. So how old were you when you started playing drums? I was in seventh grade. So I was about 12 and I wasn't, I wasn't very good. Jones, that's Elvin Jones. Uh, (laughs) It's quiet. Uh, I just knew I wanted to play drums and I knew I wanted to play some music and I liked these bands. And there were some other bands around uh, Northern Virginia, the DC area that were pretty good. The organic cavemen, (laughs) the Yorkshires, it was supposed to be Yorkshires, but they called it the Yorkshires. Uh, a number of bands that could like, you know, play two or three sets and be pretty good. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. I didn't really know how I was going to monetize it. And then I found out about this band, Dino, Desi and Billy, that was using, they were using the best session players in Los Angeles. And I thought, what's a session player? And then the monkeys came out and people were like, hey, they're not really playing their instruments. And I went, well, who is and how can I get that gig? Right. I was musically curious. And it's interesting. Some people say, oh, the monkeys, it was uh, plastic or fake or whatever. And I was like, yeah, but those records are pretty good. That's Hal Blaine, I think. Uh, And look who wrote those songs. I mean, you're looking at Carole King and Neil Diamond and people like that. Neil Diamond, Voice and Heart. There's some great ones. I'm a believer. It's just, you know, it's been a hit probably two or three times. So, you know, at that point or during those high school days, you know, you want to take this a little further and you go study music in Miami and Man, I just, I did a little reason. You were there with some heavy hitters, man. Pat Metheny, Hiram Bullock, Steve Morris, Hornsby, Danny Gottlieb. My God, you all are in school together? Yeah. And I just thought like, uh, well, here we go. This is the real world here. There were some, the guitar players down there were incredible. Stan Samoli was one of the teachers, but there was Hiram Bullock. Matheny swerved into the scene for a little while. So it was just kind of a, a standard of like, okay, I'd like to be in that first band, but Danny Gottlieb's there. So I got to really work hard to get there. Um, Danny, sweet guy, great sound and a good reader too. So you kind of had to have the package deal to succeed at Miami. That's crazy Um, that all of them are in the same place at the same time. Yeah. At that time, it just sort of hit and people go, wow, were you into the Miami music scene? And I said, I think we started our own kind of thing there. It's just kind of developed. And even Bruce, Bruce was, um, Bruce had only been playing a little while. He was really into high school basketball and probably would have been a mid-level division one basketball player. But his junior year of high school, I think he went, you know, I want to play piano. So probably a good career choice. Longevity. Yeah, exactly. Um, is, is that how, when you were at Miami, is that when you first hear the Grateful Dead? Do you remember? Well, we'll go back to that. Year? Sure. I was like a sophomore in high school. I'd heard of the the band. The name was so great. Um, and I'll try to not ramble too much with this. I was in a band, one of those bands called the Yorkshires, Yorkshires. I got asked to play drums in that when one of their drummers went off to college and they pull out that Grateful Dead album, the one with all the tubas on it. And I think I mentioned the other day, we learned that that song. Hey, hey, uh, golden Road. party every day. Yeah, the golden road. Thank you. But I thought it was Nirvana, Nirvana every day. But We didn't have the lyric sheet, so we learned it. And I thought, that's a pretty cool jam. And uh, really didn't sort of swerve back into the dead until American University, which uh, some of your fans will know, 72 or 73, a free show that we just walked down the hill to what now is an intramural field. 
And I'm guessing by today's standard, there may be three to 4,000 people there. And I thought the band was cool, but I thought the audience was the most fantastic thing that I've ever seen. Because for a lot of us, you know, the deads conceptually sometimes exceeded their chops, their playing ability. They were so far into Cold Train and, you know, this adventurous freestyle playing. So they kind of lost me, but the audience like stayed right with it the whole time. They were super patient. And I said to myself, self, someday, maybe you'll find this audience and they'll find you and you'll be able to play for them. And sure enough, man, all of a sudden I'm working with Bruce Hornsby at the University of Miami. And he goes, yeah, let's uh, let's touch on this Grateful Dead jam called the Big Railroad Blues. So I hadn't played Big Railroad Blues. I didn't know what Big Railroad Blues was. So Bobby Hornsby, who's on bass, a year or two older than Bruce goes, just play rock, man. Play like a Chuck Berry thing or something. And he goes, I got this. And we started into Bobby Hornsby. He's doing Phil Lesh, which I had never even considered. And here I'm getting a lesson from Bobby Hornsby on how to play with Phil Lesh. And I didn't even know it. And then I noticed the crowd response to Big Railroad Blues was rather substantial. It's like all the people who were deadheads turned purple and applauded for Big Railroad Blues. Um, So my awareness started to grow more and more from that initial salvo of sophomore year in high school. Um, when, when I, when I saw him at AU, uh, I remember a couple girls came up and said, you guys have a bottle opener? And my friend, Marty McGoldrick, uh, from McLean high school said, no, but I can open it. And I think he opened it with his teeth or his belt buckle. And these girls just thought it was so cute and laughed. And I thought, man, this is where I belong. These people are super nice. So that's kind of my introduction to the dead with it. One thing is that Bruce emphasized the reason that they were successful is because of their great songwriting. Right. And that stayed with me. And, and Bruce, I mean, when you started playing with Bruce and Bobby, you're, they're playing quite a few Grateful Dead songs at that point. I mean, I, I remember hearing like a, there's a tape out there of some playing in the band they did. I assume that's you on drums as well. That um, might be the earlier band out of Charlottesville, Virginia. That might be long before Dave Matthews ever got there. Right. Uh, uh, and yeah, they 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 had a more of a dead cover band that Bruce was in. But most of our stuff was like you know Sugar Mag or Going Down the Road, Big Railroad Blues, kind of the easier side before we got into the more advanced stuff. And is that the point where you really start to absorb what the grit, not just the crowd. Now you're really talking about the music. Is that when you start to absorb what the music is about coming out of yeah. the head? Yeah. When, when Brent started to have some issues, God rest his soul. Um, they called Bruce. And I remember we were in Bruce Hornsby in the range and we were doing pretty well. We were doing really well. Selling millions of records. And I remember uh, Bruce said, yeah, they want me to come in and, and fill in. And I was like, yeah, man, that's cool. We'll expand our audience and you'll do really well with that. They'll like you and you like them. And you know a lot of the songs. One of the guys in the band was not so keen on it. Right. But Bruce decided to do it. And I, I would go in the back lounge of the bus with Bruce. And he was such a hard worker and so diligent. He'd have his songbook out. And he'd be going through these songs. So all of a sudden I started hearing songs like Estimated Profit, which I had never heard before. 
or Jack Straw. Here's to you, Bobby. Uh, or as I called it originally, the bride of Cucamonga. <laughs> the stuff that I kind of knew and I went, oh, man, this has really got some stuff to it. This is great. That's when I really started to get into the material rather than just, you know, the feel of it. I started to actually get into what they were doing. Uh, favorite period, probably 72 to 74. Um, just a quick story about playing with, with, with Bobby and Phil. They asked me to play with them and I said, I'll do my best. I said, I just want to tell you that I, I cannot play like Chrisman or Mickey. And in a beautiful gesture, Phil and Bobby said to me, John, we're hiring for you. We, you for you. We want you to play like you. You know how the songs go. We don't expect you to sound like anybody else but you. And from the get, it was like, wow, they're giving me permission to be myself. And uh, that was a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, between us as drummers, I'm trying to play um, Shakedown Street the way Jeff Beccaro from Toto would play. It just doesn't sound like that. Right. So they they uh, provided me a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, I still learn something about the lyrics of the songs every now and then. Sometimes I've played them a lot. And I didn't, you know, I didn't realize what, uh, you know, oh, geez, that song about Altamont. I didn't realize it was about Altamont. I was like, whoa, that's really heavy. Oh, um, this darkness has got to end yeah, new speed one way or it. another. New but, speed yeah, I didn't I didn't get that. I drive by that place all the time. I want to jump around a little bit since you went there and you started talking about, so that's the other ones, right? Like 97, 98, when you're doing that, when you really first yeah. start playing with them, yeah. is that I'm, we're going to jump around. I'm going to move up to that because I wanted to ask you when you join the other ones, that's you and Mickey. I saw a bunch of those shows. Is that your first time double drumming per se, working with another drum set player? Yeah, pretty what's much. That, what's that like? Full time. How was that? How's it change your approach, your mindset? What's it like for you when all of a sudden you've gone from, you know, playing super popular music as one drummer and always working by yourself to now playing with another drum set player. Yeah. And Mickey, you know, Mickey's bit a bit shamanistic, man. He's, he's yeah. really cool for me to play with. He's like uh, providing energy and atmosphere and all this stuff. I mean, the guy's done more for drums and drumming than I don't know. Most people, you know, he, his collection substantial, you know, um, He's put together some great projects. Oh, yeah. So uh, out of, it was the thing out of respect, like, hey, man, I want to go for this. Plus, um, Phil and I were really connecting. So it was a great thing. So two drummers was totally cool. And Phil was happy. So I think Mickey was digging the fact like, hey, man, we're, we're resonant here. We're, we're, we're feeling good about this thing. So Mickey and I got along really well. And I followed Mickey for the most part. Um, you know, I put my thing on it and I was encouraged to do different things, but a lot of it was just, okay, I want, I want whoever's singing to sound great. And, uh, you know, that was pretty much my approach make the other guys really comfortable. So right. that's what it was like, but Mickey was really cool for sure. Were you both playing bass drums in that group? No, Mickey had a low end rig, but he was mostly doing his stand up thing. Not comedy, not stand-up comedy, stand-up drumming. <laughs> he had a big, cool rig, but he, most of the, the kick drum stuff um, was mine. Not all the time, but most of the time. As I recall, that was a while ago. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. You know, I saw a bunch of those shows. Also, if I remember on those shows, 
he did some Hornsby tunes too, like Rainbow's Cadillac, I even think might have been one of them. So when you're doing the Hornsby tunes, is Mickey is the role changing and Mickey's following you a little bit more? Yeah, exactly. Which Mickey was totally cool with, you know. It's a it's a different feel. You know, we were Bruce and I, in a lot of ways, uh we were more in pursuit of New York jazz and R and B, you know. So we're thinking like, I mean, I'm thinking like Elvin, even though I don't sound anything like him, I'm still conceptually thinking like, okay, we're going to make this thing kind of somewhere between like uh, not fade away and, uh, you know, Coltrane and Elvin. So that's what we're going for. So when the, we do that with the dead guys, we just kind of bring them along a little bit without being draconian or procrastinating in nature, you know, forcing it, just, letting it be and having them bring their thing to it. But that, that makes so much sense for that music, especially, you know, when you think about Billy, he's a huge Elvin fan, you know, so you're, oh. you're, you're coming in from the right mindset, right from the get go, because you're, you're thinking and the person you're thinking of is the same person who's a huge influence on Bill. Yeah. Billy. Uh, yeah, man. When, I was talking to Hornsby the other day, Bruce and I still just randomly chat and you know, what starts out to be a three minute conversation goes for about 20 but he said the same thing, you know, I talked about Billy and he goes, yeah, man, he gets that Elvin thing going. So it's not just for the drummers. I mean, there are other people picking up on it. He gets that jazz tilt going. Yeah. And, uh, that, that left hand. That way. Like I said, I can't, can't impersonate him. Uh, after, after Bruce, you guys get introduced to them in 87 when you open for him. But then Bruce, like you said, starts playing with them in 90 all the way through towards off and on towards the end. Um, does. Bruce moving over and starting to play with the dad changed the approach that you and him are taking with his music. Absolutely. We played Laguna Seca. I think you're thinking maybe that's our first show. Right. Rye Cooter's on that. And Jim Keltner's playing drums with Rye. And we get a cool slot. So we played the first day. And I mean, you got to think, we're a new band. We've got like 11 songs. <laughs> so, so we play the first day and they're eh, cool with it. And we play the second day and Bruce and I recall this a little bit differently, but it's almost the same. Uh, we start the second day and we play a couple of the same songs that we played on the first day. Deadheads and there, that. There are two, hey, there's two guys up front. And as I recall, they were nice. And one of them said, hey, man, you're not going to play the same show. But Bruce remembers it as one of them yelling at him, not the same show. And we were like, oh, right. Deadheads, they were here yesterday. And Bruce immediately adjusted. So that that was a bit of a turning point. Also, the looseness with the set list. You know, you have a few songs in mind. And then he just kind of wing it, depending on the on the crowd. He was much looser in a lot of ways with his approach. And also changing the set every night. You got to remember, like when I played with John Fogarty, we basically played the same show every night. Right. And it's all the same which, three minute songs. Yeah, it's like a jukebox, right? really good jukebox. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I said to them one time, I said, man, you know, to his brother, Bob, I said, Bob, you're not going to get people coming two or three nights in a row if you're playing the same show. You guys, Credence and John, there's so much material to borrow from. So that's one of the things we learned from the dead. Like if if you want people to come more than one night, give it, give it, give them something special. From From a musical standpoint, did it, 
lead to you change as a band? I'm talking about you and Bruce, and this is after the range, but you're still with Bruce. Does it lead you guys to to start jamming more and taking the music out a little further? Yes, for sure. Yeah, right on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I talked to Bruce and said, "Hey, man, are you in New York?" And he goes, "Yeah." I said, oh, "How is it?" He goes, "Man, I had dinner with Ornette Coleman last night." <laughs> you know, so his his brain just really expanded from. <clears throat> you know, the pop side, Bruce Hornsby in the range with the hits to, if you go listen now to where it's at, you know, his most, con- uh, most recent outings, they're just wonderful. They're not pop records, but they are so artsy and, and just wonderful that, you know, he reached that place as an artist. I think a lot of it had to do with the dead for sure. As you move on from that, you know, you do the other ones and then that leads to Phil. Um, that you're learning so much of a new repertoire right now. You know, you got so many new songs that you got to put into your catalog. How are you learning them? Are you listening to the Grateful Dead versions? Are they laying stuff on you to check out? How, how do you start to immerse yourself in the catalog as you start playing with them? Well, you know, I was really lucky because musician wise, Jimmy Herring, Warren Haynes, and then the Oracle, as we call them, I call them Rob Baracco. <laughs> they all had a certain take on the material and Rob knew it down. Jimmy is just so industrious and really studied the stuff. Warren has kind of the photographic memory. I knew probably 50 to 60% of it. But the way we learned it was um, as a unit, as I recall, and we started putting a bit of a different take on it. There were occasionally things like um, in Terrapin, Phil wanted me to play a certain way. And he would look at me and go, no, John, what I'm thinking. And then he would play air drums for me, which was just magical and comedic and (laughs) confounding all at the same time. There's Phil who I've never seen sit behind a drum kit, kind of air drumming, kind of tap dancing, Paul Moitian around the kit. And I'm like, okay, man, I'll I'll do my best. Sure. That explains everything. No problem, Phil. I got it, man. (laughs) So just to jump ahead a little bit. So, we kind of develop our own things. So I'm working with Graham Lash one time and I said, Hey Graham, how do you play this section? And like I said earlier, Pride of Cucamonga and Graham goes, well, I don't know how the dead did it. I learned it from the queue with you and Warren and Jimmy and Ross. Nice. <laughs> so his generation and some people like that was like, Oh yeah, Kimok and Trey, you know, Warren and Jimmy. Yeah. I like that. So we just kind of started to put our own stamp on it. Um, Kimok, I and uh, Phil, Steve Kimock and, and I drove through the, I don't know, we were way up in the mountains, man. We were listening to Coltrane and just really into it. <coughs> so, excuse me, some collective listening occasionally helped as well. I'm thinking as you're mentioning all these names, you, obviously the Q was probably the, the most well-known of the lineups that you were in. But you were with Phil for so long and, and Phil Lesh and Friends. You played with so many different players in that group. I mean, your first shows were with, with Trey and Paige, I'm pretty sure. Correct. Is it difficult as you're playing with Trey and Page for a while, and then you got Kim Ock, and then you got you got Schofield, and you got Jimmy and Warren. Does your playing in general have to change a lot, a little bit, according to the lineup you have? Not just the players, but the instrumentation as well. You know, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the guys from Fish, Trey and Page. Um, I was a casual Fish fan. I like the, the the void that they filled and the framework that they provided for the listeners. Thought they were a really good band. Not really big on the songwriting thing, but I 
wasn't overly familiar with it. There's a couple in there. But overall, I just thought, you know, they're cool, man. They got a good band. But when I worked with Tran Page, I realized they also have a serious work ethic. We rehearsed a lot and really put the time in. Um, I thought I didn't know how Trey was going to Trey and Kimok were going to work out, but they did really well. And I don't know Paige that well, but he was a nice guy and he was prepared. So it was really cool. And I realized they have a lot of serious fans, man. So I was glad to be part of that lineup. For me, credibility wise, you know, I still have people come up and go, oh, yeah, you played with Trey and and Kimok. And I was like, yeah, you know, even getting back to Hornsby, Hornsby said he was just going to give it a casual listen to a couple of songs. He said he ended up listening to like four hours of it. So that was a great lineup. I do change my playing occasionally. Uh, I try to really follow the soloist and the, what's going on musically. But every once in a while, you got to drive the bus, too, as a listener or as a player. Every once in a while, I project myself into the audience as a listener and go, would you be digging this? And might try to change it up a little bit but i try not to um harness it or 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 control it i just try to let it go and you know playing with phil is great you know sometimes we are just so connected it's it's unbelievable other times not so much but well it's going to be like that with anybody i mean you know always good nights and bad nights you know can because of a myriad of reasons what you ate that night how much you slept what what you guys talked about. There's so many different things that can play into it. And I would say this, uh, Rob, that they were all good nights. It was just some were really magical metric modulations going into the next song. All of a sudden we were at tempo and feel and the right key. I don't know how that happened. So the magical nights, but they were all pretty consistently good. I don't think I ever got like, I'm going to quit the band because we suck. (laughs) Well, especially like that Q lineup. You know, that might have been, I'm not, I can't say this for sure, but that's one of the longest running constant lineups that you guys had. And, and those jams just got super, super deep, you know, and, and the catalog expanded too, because you all got comfortable with each other. When you're, when you're doing that, you mentioned Phil talking about a part of Terrapin where he air drummed to show you what he would, what he would envision on that. But by and large, when you guys are in that, in that setting, the queue, does he have a specific vision in there? Or are you guys just allowed to go without a net and do what you do? Uh, pretty much without a net, especially now. He just lets it rip. Occasionally, uh, back in the early days, he'd have a box he would step on and go, E! Or something. <laughs> and we were, we were, I was, Rob and Jimmy and Warren were like, we'll hear it. I said, man, even I can hear it. Come on, man. And eventually he let that kind of go. He just kind of was like, oh, these guys are going to follow this immediately. So that that band also developed because it was easy. Everybody knew the material really well. <clears throat> the vocals were solid with Rob and Warren and, and uh, Phil, you know, Warren is not totally unique in that, but rare in that he's a great lead singer, but he also, he's an excellent harmony singer. So yeah. we had the vocals covered. And I think with the dead, you know, a lot of times the audience knows the lyrics better than I do, you know, Unless I can see one of the guy's teleprompters and then I just follow along, <laughs> right? follow the bouncing ball, as we say. Uh, so the thing with the cue was they had it down lyrically. And I think the connection with the audience was substantial because of that. That's awesome. I mean, I, I saw a bunch of those shows, always enjoyed it just because it, I mean, you took those songs, that group would take those songs to places they hadn't really been in the Grateful Dead's uh, 
Well, jamming. thank you so much. Um, when, when, okay, this is anytime you're playing with somebody like, let's just talk about this with Phil. His, his bass playing style, it's, it's so non traditional and it's different, you know, very, very different from how most rock players play. You know, the, the one almost doesn't exist. How, how does that affect you as a drummer? Do you have to have a, a, a different level of concentration or do you have to approach the aesthetic of the groove differently because it's such a non traditional way to play bass? Non-traditional is a really nice way to say it, Rob. Um, yeah, the first couple of times I played with him, I realized uh, we're going into the chorus and you're playing from the lower register to the upper register without making a delineation between the verse or B section or pre-chorus into the chorus. Right. So I picked up on that pretty quick. Um, I had a friend of mine who was not a deadhead, but was a very good musician and he came out to hear the cue. And afterwards, he said, man, that was just great. He goes, but I got to tell you, man, that bass player ain't giving you much to go on. And I said, I said, I, I dig it. I said, he developed that thing. You know, that's his thing of like not giving it away necessarily. Root fifth, root fifth. Here's the chorus and bang, bang. It's a, it's a different approach. But I picked up on it quickly and it is non-traditional. But just like I said, Phil was given time and permission from himself as well as the band to develop that style and it is peerless but like i said bobby hornsby really helped me with the phil lush style of bass playing uh he was he really had it down so i was i was prepared a bit and also you know just hearing bruce's take and playing some of the songs i sort of got the idea of what they were doing my my answer to your your buddy who said what did you say he's not giving you a lot to to go on to go with he actually was much more street. He says he ain't giving you nothing. I would. My answer to that would be he's giving me a lot, but he's not. He's not. He might not be giving me anything that my right foot, my bass drum, would be working with. But he's giving me plenty to play with. It's just in a different way. You are. That is the right answer, Rob. And I think I sort of got to that after my initial kind of. <laughs> I thought it was just funny. It was such a, a musoid, intellectual uh, kind of traditional way to look at it but i'm with you it gives you if he's got permission i have permission to to loosen it up and yeah just to loosen it up make it make it feel special for the yeah. audience and, and for us it's not going to be your traditional my kick drum is going to line up with your bass going into the chorus and, and coming out and all that it's going to be it's a, a different way to play but there's still going to be a different way with. to play it so like i said like with scott lafaro you know he was searching for a thing um, and uh, you know, he found it. Unfortunately, he, he passed away early. Phil, on the other hand, I think he has nine lives, man. Yeah. It's just like, keeps going. And every time I hear him, I'm like, man, that guy just sounds great. And he just had a birthday a couple days ago, I think. Yes. After yeah. When he that. puts that bass on, he, <clears throat> he transcends time. And I, we've talked about that before too, that when we're playing music, we don't age. Right. Right. So one more, I want to Chuck ask one more thing about all this. You, you, when you're not with Phil, you go out and you work with Fogarty, you work with David Nelson, you work with Chris Robinson and Greenleaf Rustlers. You got Moon Alice, of course, California kind, all these different groups um, where the, where you go back to, I'm going to use that word, a more traditional form of the music and a more traditional groove, if you will, on a lot of that stuff, especially like Fogarty, like you were talking about. So when you get into those kind of other applications, you know, other, those other settings, does 
that ethos of the Grateful Dead and the jamming and the influence still permeate your playing when you go into all these other settings? Okay, I'll touch on that real quickly. Not with John Fogarty. He doesn't like the dead that much. He's okay with the songs, but he is not like, anytime I try to jam or open it up, the door would shut. And But having said that, I love those songs. Down sure. in the Corner, Proud Mary, Bad Moon Rising, Green River, Born on the Bayou. You can't beat it, man. It is just wonderful. And I had a great relationship with John and, and it's cool, but you don't, that's show drumming. That's really hard volume. There's SVTs and Marshalls up there. You got to unleash, you know, like if you watch Kenny Aronoff, right. He's, he's, he's very strong, man. He's, he's pounding it. Um, you mentioned Chris Robinson, one of my favorite singers. And uh, you know, with Chris, you can bring a little bit of that in there. You know, he's so well-rounded, but you got to kick ass. You know, you got to give him something to really dig into because he's got an interesting hybrid of styles. You know, he's a wonderful singer and I can bring a little bit in on that. Um, with young Katie, <clears throat> she's kind of like Bonnie Raitt meets the dead. I think she's at her best when she's playing blues, electric guitar with that slide and playing really cool classic kind of Dylan dead, Neil Young, Clapton. So with her, yeah, you take it out a little bit and she'll even get a little psychedelic, you know, she, she'll lose form. And, you know, I think it just depends on who the artist is and where you take it and how you bring that dead influence into it. I, I read a quote. I meant to ask you this earlier. I had it on a piece of paper over here. I read a quote from you in some article you must've done years ago, whenever, I don't know. I just saw it and I wrote it down because it was, it meant just think about the music and you'll sound good. Do you remember saying that? That sounds like something I might've been working on at the time. Like don't let the distractions get to you. Would you say that quote one, one more time? Just think about the music and you'll sound good. Yeah. All your other stuff, put it away. Like not to be a pot advocate, but one of the reasons I like smoking pot back in the late seventies is because I couldn't multitask. All I could do is think about the music to get through. Couldn't space out. Couldn't think about the lights or the sound. Just think about the music, man. And the feel, not the feeling necessarily, or the feelings, but the feel of the music, what it's trying to convey, you know, be it a Bob Dylan song or a Neil Young song, you know, some of them rock, some of them don't, you know, you just get into it as much as you can without the distractions and don't mix your monitors while you're playing, you know, positively fourth street or whatever, right. play the song. Just find in your heart what works for the tune. Yeah. And do your best. And, you know, some people say, well, follow your dreams. Don't let anything get in the way. Yeah, follow your dreams if you've got the skills. But don't be delusional. You know, my daughter is one of the best listeners of music I've, I've ever been around. She can play a little bit, but what a great listener. Man, she gets it. So music is, you know, you never know what you're going to do. You could end up being a music editor or music attorney or a drummer. There's a lot of professions involved with music. Oh, shit. You could be stuck at home while you can't play drums and you start a podcast. You just never know. Well, I think, you know, I think it's a great <laughs> idea to talk about some of this music. And, you know, so many of the cool players um, in the scene. And right there's on, there's man. a bunch of them, man. You know, it, it is. It's been a lot of fun doing this and, and getting, you know, to talk to my friends, but more, which is great. You know, we don't get to talk that often, um, but 
more just to be able to get this out there for some people to really hear some of these people who they go out and watch all the time and hear where their mindset is and where they're coming from. And uh, yeah. I thank you for sharing yours with us. Um, before I let you go, though, uh, if you don't mind, I have in my podcast, I end every one of these interviews with the world's slowest lightning round. I try to make it a lightning round and it never goes that way. So we'll see how we do. Okay, well, that's the speed of light, lightning. I might be at the speed of sound. Okay, are you ready? Sure, man. I'm I'm nervous. No, you'll, you'll be fine. You already answered the first one. First show was American University. Correct. Favorite show? William and Mary, 1979. Studio recordings or live recordings? Both. I like the production values from Terrapin Station that Keith Olsen produced. Yeah. Favorite dead album? <laughs> it's going to get worse. Wait till the next one. <laughs> you know, I can't even think of the titles. What's right, the one that begins with A and it's hard to pronounce? Yeah, that one. I won't try, but Oxamoxarixin. <laughs> that was like a prescription drug. There's that one. And then there's the one where they kind of sound like uh, Uncle John's band. Uh, That's remember a, that. Working Pardon? Man's Dead. Yeah. American, American Beauty. No, Working Man's Dead. There's so uh, many of them. I mean, you know, and also I didn't listen to the albums as much as I did like a hundred songs at one time. Right. No excuses though. Oh, you're going to hate this question. Okay. So favorite, favorite album is. though you were asking. Yeah. Favorite album. Terrapin. All right, here we go. Favorite non-dead album. <laughs> Nobody likes this question. It's too hard. No, I like it. I just have so many that I like. That's the hard thing. <laughs> That's right. Buddy Rich. Mercy, mercy. Favorite color purple me too a lot of drummers save purple first job uh delivering newspapers in washington dc for a newspaper called the evening star favorite it was venue the second to banana play. to the washington post right on favorite venue to play red rocks best city for a day off washington dc Washington, D.C., because it's close to home or just because there's so much to do? Well, there's Smithsonian's there. Yeah. There's a bunch of great restaurants, and it's a little easier to get around than New York or some of the other cities. But my favorite day, my favorite day off, Niagara Falls with Moon Alice and the T-Sisters. Nice. That was really fun. Beautiful weather, funny photos, and they have great energy. Uh, first car, you remember? Uh, 1972 Oldsmobile Cutlass convertible. Current car. <laughs> black. Black. <laughs> I got to make sure I say this right. Black Chevy Tahoe. Yeah, sounded right to me. <laughs> book black your, Tahoe. Book your reading right now. Um. Interestingly enough, yes. Uh, the Scott LaFaro biography. I think ah. it's called Shades of Jade or something like that. We talks about, I didn't realize what a West Coaster he was. He grew up in the Valley or later in Canoga Park. And, you know, he talks about playing with Bill Evans and just a lot of cool stuff. So that's, I'm, I'm t I got to finish it. I'm taking my time. Right on. Any magazine subscriptions? No. All right. And the last one, the first trip you will take when this madness is over. Um, Upstate Michigan, up around Traverse City, 
Oh, beautiful. Um, yeah, man. Go out on one of the lakes there and uh, do some do some boarding. Well, hey, man, I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time today. I always love talking with you. This was a great one. So I yeah, appreciate man. you putting it out there for everybody, man. Oh, yeah. And much love to, you know, all the people that uh, have seen me over the years. I'm not always great with the recognition factor, but I do have to say I was playing the Capitol Theater about a couple of years ago with Phil. And I saw some people in the lobby of the uh, courtyard by Marriott. And I said, oh, hey, how you doing? I was on stage. I recognized them from the audience. I said, oh, I was right by you guys. So you guys were like in the fifth row. And they said, yeah, where were you sitting? And I said, behind the drums. <laughs> so a little comedy and a little humility, right? <laughs> that happens to us a lot, those guys who sit in the back, you know? Yeah. Well, like I say, well, we're out here in Jamaica with my favorite three Robs. <laughs> right. Rob Quartz, Rob Barocco, and Rob the guitarist. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Molo, thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. That's John Molo for you, everybody. Thank you so much, Rob. All right, take care. Take care. Peace out, bro. So much fun. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank John Molo and Shuhei over in Tokyo for spending some time with me today. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, the Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats, who is giving $10 off every purchase, now through April 7th, with the coupon code THEMUSICPLAYS. If you enjoyed the show today and would like to support the cause, please consider a subscription at www.patreon.com forward slash themusicplays that offers weekly bonus content, or make a one-time contribution at paypal.me forward slash themusicplays. Any love is much appreciated as we get this show off the ground. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English. I'll be back again in two weeks on April 8th with episode 10. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, folks, and it's going to take everybody's efforts to get us there as quickly as possible, and we appreciate that. So uh, we'll see you again soon, and thanks for being here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 